work with us. That's Stephen Bezruchka, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Stephen Bezruchka on COVID-19 Lessons for the Future. If you weren't aware of it before, the pandemic demonstrates the fact that the virus recognizes no boundaries or borders. There's no safe place. Our collective fragility has been made all too evident. What will we take away from the COVID-19 plague? We go back to business as usual only at our peril, as other pandemics are sure to come. Dr. Stephen Bezrushka says we need to rally around creating a society to work for global sustainability. COVID-19 threatens the planet. This crisis is an opportunity, he says, to make big changes in our relationship with each other and the planet. Incremental change is not going to work. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. He's Associate Teaching Professor in the Department of Global Health and of Health Services at the School of Public Health at the University of Washington. He worked for many years as an emergency physician. He spoke in Seattle in late May. And now, Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. For almost a year and a half, we earthlings have been assaulted by a serious contagion which we will remember as one of the most significant and disruptive events of our lives. I will propose different ways of dealing with the crisis, ones we should have considered and debated in the beginning, and then look at what our options are at this point. The Global Trends 2040 report produced by the National Intelligence Aid Council, comprised of our Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, Federal Departments of State, Energy, Treasury, and Defense, the National Security Agency, USAID, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, classified the pandemic to be the most significant global disruption since World War II. Disruption? Let's not hide behind euphemisms. This is World War III we are fighting. And this is a very different great war. In this conflict, it's impossible for a country to escape the carnage and safe neutrality, nor for civilians to find shelter far from the front lines. We're all combatants on the front line. Moreover, our common enemy is invisible and wily. We were unprepared for a global infection of this magnitude. The virus went viral. We had glimpses of the possible danger with the Ebola epidemic in Africa. Will we be prepared for the one that follows COVID-19? This will require us to configure a new global political economy. Why did World War III start? In answering such questions, I teach my students to ask, what was the cause of a current situation? Then to ask, what produced that cause? And to continue tracking this causation process until they get to the key or upstream or source factor. Let's paddle upstream to determine the source of our pandemic problem. Why did the pandemic World War III happen? 
because the virus jumped from bats to humans in November 2019 in China. Why? Because we had destroyed so much natural habitat, bringing us in much closer contact with other creatures. Why? Because it was profitable to to deforest and plant monocrops. Why? Because we wanted economies to grow. Why? Because that was the way we could make huge profits. Why? Because we developed rampant capitalism to exploit others to benefit some. Why? Because we've been taught to think that way from an early age. Why? Because it serves the needs of the rich and powerful. Why? Because they want only one thing, more wealth. Why? Because that is the way our society has been set up to make the rich richer. I'll stop at this point. Some of you are not going to think that we have set up our sixth system with the prime directive of making the rich richer, but many more of you are coming around to that viewpoint. What we are facing right now here in America is not a pretty picture. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, shows COVID cases and deaths are undercounted. The numbers are so enormous that we have become desensitized and uncomprehending. Abnormal has become the new normal. Long before COVID-19 arrived, the health status of Americans was lackluster and not just for the poor. Few of us would believe our shameful showing in the greatest country in the world with the most advanced medical care system. Most people in the United States want a healthy and long life. This goal has been eluding us for many decades, and our situation is getting worse. If we wish to improve our status, we must start by challenging our widely held belief that the United States is the greatest country in the world. There is no measure of health for which this is true. In the early 1950s, we could claim to be one of the healthiest countries in the world measured by mortality rates. Since then, many other nations have seen faster health improvements than ourselves. Today, some 50 countries have lower death rates, and we are one of a few nations seeing increases of deaths for women from childbirth-related causes. African-American mothers bear the brunt of this tragedy. For adult mortality, the probability of dying between the prime years of life, between age 15 and 60, all the other rich countries outperform us as do poorer ones such as Sri Lanka, Tunisia, and Peru. Not only are our lives shorter than in about 50 other nations, U.S. lifespan has declined in the last few years. Yes, our health was getting worse before COVID-19 struck. Before COVID, we consumed more than half of the world's opioids here and had the highest number of deaths from opioid overdoses. During the pandemic, overdose deaths have gone up, a sign of the increased stress in our society. You can easily verify this from reputable internet sources. 
most Americans will not confront this reality. I've been drawing attention to our being dead first for decades. The resistance to recognizing these facts puzzles me. Americans have a prevailing belief that the United States is the best country in the world. American exceptionalism. We refuse to recognize that life might be better elsewhere. Despite the hordes of unhoused in our midst, the violent outbursts, the obvious poverty. Why? Is it our belief in the Declaration of Independence giving us the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Most of us unquestionably believe that the average American enjoys the longest life on the planet, that we have the freedom to do whatever we want. And then there's the pursuit. Our life expectancy is mediocre compared to many other countries, and liberty is only an illusion as we house more prisoners than any other nation. That leaves us only with the right to pursue happiness, which we do with a vengeance. Despite that frenetic pursuit, our happiness as a nation has been declining, and the decline is greatest in women. It should be no surprise in how poorly we did in fighting SARS-CoV-2. According to IHME's revised estimates in early May, we are pushing a million deaths. Since we couldn't produce good health to begin with, we should not have been expected to be very successful in confronting SARS-CoV-2. India, with almost 750,000 deaths, and Mexico and Brazil, with over 6,200, follow us in the league table of deaths in mid-May 2021. Getting my students to accept that the fountain of death is upon us, every one of us, is my most challenging issue. People must face reality and recognize when they have to unlearn something they previously believed, then learn new concepts. Don't believe everything you think. My students then have to inform others of our poor health status, and they excel at using social media to reach hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Mother Teresa of the Missionaries of Charity, who worked in India assisting those who were dying, gave another reason we don't act. She received the Nobel Peace Prize and has been made a saint by the Church. She said, quote, if I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. End of quote. The large number of excess deaths in the United States before COVID-19 struck, as well as those resulting from the pandemic, has produced a psychic numbing, much like the news of mass killings. We shut down. With COVID-19, many have lost their jobs and face eviction as they can't pay their rent or face retraining or have become chronically unemployed or unhoused or have to cope with other health problems and yet be unable to get medical care for them. What about our children? For decades, we have had the highest rates of child poverty of all rich nations, again, in the richest and most powerful country in world history. With family finances even more precarious than before, students take on part-time jobs to keep families afloat. 
College admissions have declined. Those in primary or secondary schools get Zoom fatigue if they are lucky to have access to the Internet, which many in America do not. Not surprisingly, the situation is better in private schools, which have remained open and set up physical distancing classrooms with extra facilities installed to accommodate student numbers. Students who manage to get into college are facing difficult career choices, if in fact they have choices to make. Huge student debt looms. Some 45 million people in this country have about $1.7 trillion in outstanding student loans. Those trying to get into college, typically seen as the way to self-betterment, often don't apply as they see grim prospects there and don't want to be burdened by more debt. With the arrival of the COVID pandemic, I began teaching virtual classes. I've seen student stress and anxiety, already pretty high before COVID, increase tremendously. Reasons include loneliness, fewer friends, and increased competition among fellow students for the limited jobs out there. Stress has increased college suicides. Mental health counseling centers are overflowing, and more students now take psychotropic medicines. The natural history of pandemics is to have periodic surges. A fourth surge had been appearing in the U.S., especially in Michigan. In Seattle, cases surged among younger adults, especially in situations where young people avoided physical distancing and enjoyed physical closeness. A surge in the highly infectious P1 variant occurred among skiers at Whistler in British Columbia. The chance of transmitting the virus on ski slopes is very small but it is much greater indoors at bars with young folk partying. Being a victim of racialized violence or other forms of violence has increased this past year. Consider causes of the increased numbers of mass shootings. Mass shootings with four or more victims per incident are more likely to happen in U.S. counties with high income inequality as well as the presence of large wealth. Across the country, murders were up in 2020, increasing some 50% in cities such as New York and Chicago and over 150% in Omaha. Last year was a record year for gun violence. Why, in the midst of this contagion, are we also killing each other with guns? There are more guns in this country than people more semi-automatic weapons in the hands of civilians than in the military. Gun sales surged last year. When there's a mass shooting, people go out and buy more guns, a setup for more violence. Homicides are causally related to income inequality. Where there's a big gap between those richer than ourselves, we can resort to killing the competition people whose status is close to ours. This can be a black person killing another black or a white killing Asians or white upon white. I've been highlighting economic inequality is a key factor in how 
as society functions for decades. Studies show that income inequality at the county level is the likely reason for the different rates of COVID-19 deaths across those U.S. counties. This matters more than the racial or ethnic composition. Inequality built into our U.S. economic system kills. The sickness is the system, not the virus. The system we have today, neoliberalism, began in the 1970s. The richest 1% responded to the low point in their fraction of U.S. wealth then by making us accept market fundamentalism. We use market mechanisms when they help the rich and subsidies for them when they don't. We have a system that privileges fantastic wealth accumulation. Wealth is something only a few enjoy. If everyone has it, then it is not wealth. Consider the pandemic billionaires. The wealth of the richest person on the planet, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, is unbelievable. The 35th Forbes annual billionaire list appearing on April 6th said he has $177 billion. Take freshly minted crisp $100 bills, our largest denomination currency, and stack them on top of each other until they reach $177 billion. That pile would reach out more than 120 miles into space. We love such profiteering and believe we are rewarding hard work. That Forbes list points out that the combined wealth of the billionaires in 2021 was $13.1 trillion. That's trillion with a T. Up from $8 trillion in 2020. A gain of over $5 trillion in wealth in just one year. This is an obscene form of pandemic bracketeering. The richest 20 people on the planet have more combined wealth than the bottom half, some 4 billion people. Filthy lucre, more than you can imagine. The neoliberal agenda has succeeded to benefit the very rich, not the common woman or man. This is the sick system. We are in an economic depression. The last one after the stock market crash in 1929 produced good outcomes, most of them packaged in the New Deal by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. These included Social Security, a federal jobs program, a minimum wage, a failed attempt at a maximum wage, and eventually Medicare. The current depression has the opportunity to extend those benefits, but only if we lose our individualistic focus and act together. Across the world, after three surges of cases and deaths, another surge has been happening. There are now surges in parts of the U.S., Europe, Latin America, and especially now India, but not everywhere. With only a partial understanding of the virus SARS-CoV-2 and the disease COVID-19, it causes Scientists are puzzling over the different increases among regions. After a year and a half, 
we still know relatively little about the virus and the disease it causes. We can expect more surprises. India, with its Prime Minister Modi, touting how well it was doing initially, is now facing a huge spike in cases and deaths. Crematoriums are running 24 hours a day. Delhi seems the worst effective and has locked down. New viral variants have arrived. Lack of oxygen and medical supplies in hospitals compounds the situation. Other countries are trying to help. Nepal, where I spent many years, is surging too. Brazil's surge is attributed to the virus variant P1 that is much more contagious. Neighboring countries worry that it will spread to them. More about viral variants and their threat later. Responses from the beginning has followed a varied pattern around the world. We are carrying on a global experiment in public policy. Examples include massive testing, contact tracing, and quarantining of those infected, such as initially in South Korea and Taiwan. Masking and limiting close personal contact, such as in Japan. Letting people get infected to build natural immunity in Sweden. Denial of danger and lack of consistent leadership is in the U.S. beginning over a year ago. Transferring any response without coordination to local authorities, state governors, county officials, each with differing ideas, again in America. Massive quarantining and the shutdown of most businesses, except those deemed essential, such as in the United Kingdom this past year. They are now reopening with the possibility of a new surge. Once a vaccination became available, it was seen to be the only solution, first with the immunization of older people and then those younger and younger, as well as those at highest risk. This rush to immunize was seen as the path to eliminate the SARS-CoV-2 threat. Given what has been happening since, we must question that strategy. Developing vaccines was mostly done through government support, as there is little money to be made by big pharma in developing pharmaceuticals to prevent disease. Profits in the pharmaceutical industry come from expensive drugs for maintaining people with common chronic diseases costly statins for high cholesterol, expensive drugs for high blood pressure. Big Pharma also doesn't want to cure diseases, so we have few new antibiotics in the pipeline. Forget about unprofitable prevention. But with government funding, Big Pharma took on producing vaccines for COVID-19, moving at warp speed to generate huge profits. When vaccines were developed, we needed to critically evaluate if they were the best strategy for the world. We skipped such an evaluation. That may be our undoing. Different vaccines were produced far more quickly than ever before because of how much governments funded their development and promoted their use. 
profit margins for the mRNA vaccines are over 30%. After December 2020, when they became available, they were hailed as the weapon that would end World War III. The global focus became getting people immunized. Getting immunized might be a good strategy for individuals in the U.S. as it prevents more serious illness and deaths, at least up to now. I received the vaccine. However, and this is perhaps the major point of this talk, it might be a bad long-term strategy for the population as a whole. Paradoxically, it could fuel the pandemic by facilitating the production of new variants able to escape the vaccine's protection. Consider a less abstruse example of a strategy which offers individual benefit but general harm. One way of dealing with crime and the increasing threat of mass shootings in the U.S. is to barricade oneself and one's family in a gated community. These are becoming more and more common. Such places are surrounded by a wall. There's an entrance gate with a guard on duty at all times who limits entrance. People inside have additional private security systems. They send their children to private schools and have concierge doctors at their beck and call. A privileged life. Is this an appropriate response for the country? Clearly not. Such hierarchical protection likely increases resentment and retaliation from the others. The solution doesn't come to grips with the problem, but hides it. Before authorities could get many vaccine doses in arms, cases and deaths from COVID-19 surged, and now there are new strains of the virus. B117 and P1 in Brazil, B1351 in South Africa, and B1617 in India. There are now also a number of mutations, such as the E484K mutation and variants, which allows the virus to evade the body's immune defenses. We don't know how effective current vaccines are against these variants. Vaccination produces a sense of security in some and an anti-vaxxer response in others, many of whom consider vaccines as a conspiracy to harm us. Important intellectual property rights about letting other countries produce their own vaccines plague us. Big Pharma doesn't want to lose this cash cow. Although we're considering allowing production of vaccines abroad, The publicly accepted counterpart is that we can't guarantee their quality. Attempts to eliminate viral diseases entirely have been successful for only a single disease, smallpox. That took a coordinated global effort over several decades to track cases and curtail the spread. What lessons are there from this success story? Smallpox had only two variants and did not infect other animals. By tracking those with the disease and immunizing others, the last case was diagnosed in 1977. It's been a major infectious disease success story. 
the smallpox virus is gone forever. Polio is another viral disease we've been trying to eradicate for decades. Polio spreads by the fecal-oral route, meaning by food and water contaminated with poop, or whatever the broadcast acceptable word is. There are three variants, and now one strain lives on in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. The virus can mutate and spread. Then new vaccines have to be developed. Since polio is spread through contact with infected feces, improving hygiene is an important prevention strategy. Attempts to eradicate polio began in 1985 by trying to immunize all children. Although present in only two countries today, some 20 other nations worry about polio transmission. Infection occurs in poor countries without developed health care infrastructure and is, and is compounded by civil wars and general strife. Attempts to immunize in Pakistan were linked to a fake CIA vaccination campaign there and led to much mistrust. Measles, caused by an airborne virus like SARS-CoV-2, is highly transmissible. If you're near someone with measles and, and unimmunized, you will get infected and show the characteristic rash. Measles is now rare in the United States. Just as with SARS-CoV-2, there are mutations and variants. A vaccine to protect against infection was first introduced in the 1960s. As part of the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine combo, the vaccine's use is widespread around the world. Deaths from measles dropped from millions globally in the 1980s to fewer than 100,000, in 2014. Deaths from measles over the last century and a half in England declined drastically from 1850 to 1970. They were very high, over one death per thousand children a year from the 1850s until about 1910, when deaths dropped precipitously. When the measles vaccine became available in 1968, Deaths there were already negligible. Why did deaths drop immensely without a vaccine? Why? The improvement in the standard of living. Better nutrition, less crowded housing, less poverty, better sanitation, and other factors we associate with the good life in modern times. Measles remains a major killer in many poor countries where living conditions haven't improved. You're listening to Stephen Bezruchka on COVID-19 Lessons for the Future. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs of this program and for our special book offer, Noam Chomsky, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal. Our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. 
what might our response to the pandemic have been? In January 2020, we needed to recognize that what had been predicted for many years was likely to happen. World War III had started. The retaliation required was a global strategy in the event that the virus spread widely. How could we have organized such a strategy? Consider some of the precedents in the past. After World War II, we created the United Nations to foster cooperation among countries and avoid such future wars. With the nuclear annihilation threat, we developed international treaties to limit the spread of nuclear weapons and contain those already produced. As HIV-AIDS spread globally, we created the UN AIDS Agency, to coordinate responses, initially focused on preventing spread and then developing treatments to sustain those infected. After recognizing that global warming was real, world leaders conducted regular meetings to pursue non-binding goals to limit further heating. But there are no mandatory regulations, just directives. So we don't have much progress yet to limit a planetary meltdown. For COVID-19 early on, we were told to avoid close physical contact with others, especially indoors, to wash our hands, to avoid touching our faces, and to disinfect surfaces where the virus might reside. Many stores were closed. Places where people congregated were shuttered. Masking became the norm. Different places within countries, as well as among countries, followed these guidelines to varying degrees. Once we recognized that transmission occurred mostly by inhaling virus particles suspended in droplets in the air, we relaxed the hygiene theatrics of scrubbing down every item brought into our homes. Strategies currently being proposed include vaccinating more and more people with the available vaccines. Israel represents a vaccine success story, with over 60% of its population vaccinated, but not all the Palestinians in their midst. A sharp decline in cases and deaths happened. Israeli officials are still worried about the spread of more lethal or vaccine-resistant variants and have instituted travel bans to some countries. Consider success stories such as South Korea, Taiwan, and New Zealand, who've immunized less than 8% of their populations. Vaccine doses are not necessary to do well with COVID. One approach would be updating the vaccines to be more effective against the variants as we do yearly for the flu. Another strategy is to go back to quarantines, lockdowns, and border controls to ban the entry of travelers. Such measures may delay, but likely not prevent the spread of new variants. Currently, the drive is the opposite, to open countries back up. We could be serious about doing genomic surveillance of all positive SARS-CoV-2 tests for variants, but this is far too expensive for most governments. 
SARS-CoV-2 infection happens in an unpredictable fashion. Control strategies vary from pushing vaccination to lockdowns to reopening society to varying amounts of financial support for people and businesses. We have chaos. What are the possible future outcomes? The pandemic could become much worse than anything we've seen. The virus could become persistent or globally endemic, meaning it is present at a somewhat stable level to keep infecting people and mutating to resist efforts to exterminate it, much like the flu today. There could be repeated cycles of surges. Much opinion today says we must continue vaccinating everyone possible. The goal is to achieve herd immunity, a level of resistance to SARS-CoV-2 in the population that will reduce the danger for even those who have not been immunized. The most knowledgeable vaccinologists, those who study vaccines, say it won't happen. A majority of epidemiology experts predict that the future U.S. situation will have low-level spread along with periodic lockdowns. They advise masking when indoors with strangers for at least another year. The end of COVID-19 is not in sight. About a quarter of Americans say they don't want immunization with substantial proportions in other nations. Without solidarity, this battle strategy won't contain our COVID contagion. In a world war, you need consistent leadership, trained troops, the right armaments, and a goal. In World War II, Germany and Japan were the enemies. Military leaders communicated amongst themselves. Country economies were directed to produce for the war effort, and there were patriotic rallying cries for victory. In combating World War III, there is no leadership. Every man and woman trying to take care of him and herself, while economies are directed towards uh, becoming profitable again. Countries are not coordinating their efforts. In emergency situations, we need leadership. Major leaders, historically, have been individuals. Think of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, or Adolf Hitler. They can all be, also be nations or authoritarian bodies whose leadership is accepted by individuals. The leadership of the uh, United Nations once had broad acceptance. Others might be the World Health Organization or the International Labor Organization. Their influences have declined recently. After World War II, and especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States was considered the world leader. The rest of the world was sure the U.S. would do better with COVID as they sought direction from the United States. We have failed miserably. When the world looked to the United States for leadership as COVID-19 broke out, they were dismayed that our president did not take the pandemic seriously and voiced ridiculous responses such as injecting bleach into our veins. While the U.S. still has vast military might spread across the globe and unparalleled financial wealth, 
the U.S. image had been tarnished. Today, we are considered one of the most terrorist nations, as we've invaded many countries or supported many foreign invasions or assassinated leaders we didn't want and wreaked such havoc that our honor and credibility has sullied in the eyes of many around the world. What has supplanted U.S. leadership are giant transnational corporations that run the world for the benefit of their shareholders, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple. Big Pharma has risen up again, too. They have enormous power and strongly influence governments who then make them even richer and more powerful. What is our enemy up to? The virus wants to survive, to escape being killed and become extinct, as happened with smallpox. SARS-CoV-2 does not want that fate. Evolutionary mechanisms or errors in duplicating the virus produce variations. If a mutation confers some survival advantage, that version will proliferate. This explains origins of the variants mentioned. The virus may be mutating much faster than we can track it. Naomi Klein, in her book Shock Doctrine, argued that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. What typically happens is that the rich and powerful use a disaster to increase their wealth and power. This has happened big time with COVID-19. But we, the people, have a golden opportunity to transform this World War III into a new way of living by embracing the concepts of planetary sustainability. Now, we are in a major social and political revolution. When you're in the midst of such a transformation, you're not aware of it. In 1917, no one called it the Russian Revolution. Historians named it afterwards. In the late 1960s, I was part of a major upheaval in the United States. It was only later that we recognized what was happening. That led to the Civil Rights Movement and the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. We must be hopeful for this revolution's outcome. What could we have done with SARS-CoV-2? When the threat became apparent, the major stakeholders should have engaged scientists, considered the evidence, and developed a coordinated global strategy. It might have been called NUWAP, Nations United Against Pandemics. It is still possible to develop NUWAP, with a blueprint to contain or control or eliminate COVID and future threats. But we are stuck in the casket of our current vaccination efforts to think outside of the box. A global cooperative body, NUAP, would recognize that the most vulnerable are poorer people and those in disadvantaged groups, Black, Indian, or Latinx, there are similar marginalized populations in other countries. All should be prioritized. Since 500 BCE, before the Common Era, we all knew the sun went around the earth, although some Greek philosophers did propose a heliocentric cosmologic model. 
The Ptolemy model of the sun going around the earth dominated scientific thinking until some 600 years ago. First, Copernicus questioned that model. Then Galileo supported those ideas a hundred years later and was excommunicated by the church. Evidence supports Galileo's views, as any astronaut can attest. This is a cosmologic reversal. We knew something was true beyond the shadow of a doubt, and now we know the opposite is so, but not all Americans believe it. Surveys today suggest a quarter of Americans believe the sun goes around the earth. As Mark Twain said, it ain't what people don't know that bothers me. It's what they know that just ain't so. Some obvious examples of scientific evidence overthrowing previous evidence, besides the Copernican scientific revolution, are the supplanting of Sir Isaac Newton's classical mechanics by both Einstein's relativity theory and quantum mechanics, a physics reversal. The idea that stomach ulcers were caused by stress was proven false by the discovery of a bacterium that produces ulcers. If you have a stomach ulcer, you are treated with an antibiotic cocktail that works, a medical reversal. What would a public health reversal look like for World War III? Perhaps a different strategy than mass immunization. So what might we have done instead of going down the slippery slope of vaccination as the cure-all? No vaccine is perfect. The virus struggles to survive, so variants appear for which the imperfect vaccine does not offer complete protection and then it infects others. The vaccine makes our innate immunity, the powerful, non-specific system we are born with, to resist and control infection, less active, and perhaps be suppressed because of the powerful, specific vaccine against the viral spike protein in our body. History is replete with public health doing the wrong thing, malpractice, if you will. There used to be campaigns to get people to smoke cigarettes to help them deal with stress in society and be more accepted, especially women. Older folk may remember the marketing slogan, You've come a long way, baby, used to sell cigarettes that appeared in 1968. A public health reversal followed. We need critical scientific scrutiny to come to a consensus of what would be best for everyone on the planet. Scientists develop hypotheses by asking what-if questions. They then carry out experiments to see what results might follow from a what-if assumption. Once scientific knowledge is gained with COVID-19, we would need a Galileo to risk excommunication. Globally, we need something on the order of the Manhattan Project that took Einstein's discovery of nuclear power and produced the atomic bomb. Not good for human existence, but given the science and the ongoing war, perhaps an appropriate response. We could have developed the atomic bomb, but not dropped it, as it was not going to help America win the war as the Japanese were ready to surrender. Another example was the goal of landing an American on the moon by the end of the 1960s. Again, a questionable objective. 
Eradicating smallpox is a fine example of a coordinated effort to a desirable outcome. We can learn from the 1918 influenza pandemic, where there was no vaccination campaign and no viral variants to maintain the scourge. It was over in a little more than a year with some three surges. Isolation worked then. We can learn from measles, where the improvement in the standard of the living was the way to limit deaths. The measles lesson requires us to improve the standard of living around the world. India has the most poverty of any nation, the most low birth weight babies, and other measures of living standards. That must change to impact its rising COVID case rate. My emergency doctor motto was, don't just do something. Stand there unless there's good evidence that doing something will make a difference. In a crisis, people need to feel cared for and safe. This results from effective leadership. It is especially difficult with our yo-yo mentality, where by yo-yo I mean you are on your own. In the previous economic crisis in 2008-9, the rich got bailed out while others suffered. We had socialism for the rich and market discipline yo-yo for the rest of us. Mortgage foreclosures led to peopleless homes and the rise of the homeless population. The same as had been happening in the U.S. with much recent federal stimulus going to large corporations and the rich. Today's world is increasingly fragmented and it will shatter even more. We're not heading towards an enhanced ability to work together. There is increased pessimism and distrust around the globe, making it more difficult to cooperate. Corporations have tremendous power and inequality is at record highs. Unregulated digital media serve corporate interests. We earth dwellers sense something is seriously wrong. We drift together in the global lifeboat without oars and no captain at the helm. I've taken you to the brink of despair. Despair rots our society. Action is the antidote to despair. What are you going to do? Follow others' good efforts and emulate their role models. Examples are Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement. The global outpouring of support for Black Lives Matter after the police murder of George Floyd shows how the world can ignite and rally to right or wrong. We need to rally around creating a society to work for global sustainability. COVID-19 threatens the planet. Global warming is even worse. The new federal administration offers hope for action on many fronts of World War III. We are immersed in the global revolution for a sustainable future. Solutions will require a level of global cooperation we've not achieved before. It won't come from the top down. We must work together to push the solution up so political leaders have no choice but to work with us. Dismantling the extreme hierarchy, the global income and wealth gap, must take precedence. Support a wealth tax. 
Humans are an altruistic species. We work together to solve problems. If we cooperate, there's enough for everyone. If we compete, there will never be enough for the bottom 99% of us. This crisis is an opportunity to make big changes in our relationship with each other and the planet. Incremental change is not going to work. We did not invent the electric light bulb by improving candles. Be a possibilist rather than a pessimist. Our history is replete with this kind of progress where we redesign the system. Youth have seized global attention and demonstrated the power of young people working for change. The book Youth to Power captures ways of becoming engaged. It talks about political writing and publishing, heading up your own movement, using art for a cause, organizing events and action, utilizing peaceful direct action, becoming the news, making your activism go viral, and much more. Create Nations United Against Pandemics, UNUAP, as the global body to fight World War III and future wars. Social media responded to the murder of George Floyd and created a global movement. This outrageous crime had the advantage of being a single tragedy, which was a galvanizing catalyst for change. The pandemic is a global phenomenon which will require a yet unborn digital strategy directed towards all the people on the planet. We need more coordinated struggles there. Take heart in the words of Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave and abolitionist, who said in 1863, quote, Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation, are men who want crops without plowing up the, so the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or may it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. End of quote. Our revolution will not be tweeted or Instagrammed. It will be fought on the streets and in the corporate suites. We must struggle together and build a new society. Thank you for listening. That was Stephen Bezuchka on COVID-19 Lessons for the Future. Stephen Bezuchka is Associate Teaching Professor in the Department of Global Health and of Health Services at the School of Public Health at the University of Washington. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We have a series of programs featuring Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of this program, Stephen Bezruchka, COVID-19 Lessons for the Future, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 
1-800-273-1977, or you can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Summers, we don't have real scorchers, so I cover up with sunscreen. Before I go out, I set my sunscreen down by a radio locked to CJSW, 90.9 FM Calgary. It goes from SPF 15 to SPF radio. I'm going to put some on right now. Yeah, you can really feel the radio. CJSW, 90.9 FM, radio you can feel. This program contains some very strong language and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Fly. 
ambition didn't have to die. Look into the earth, never look into the sky. Life's a moment, the way you own it. Depends on what you see as your ally or opponent. Those wings in flight, got they prey in sight. Flashlight, keep bright, escape out the dark night. <laughs> 